You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 2nd of January 2023 on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, broadcasting to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. Coming up on today's programme, all 379 passengers have escaped from a Japan Airlines plane which burst into flames on the runway of Tokyo's Haneda Airport. The Israeli Supreme Court has struck down Benjamin Netanyahu's judicial reform bill. Plus... Now is the right time, said Denmark's Queen, as she announced she would step down in her New Year's Eve address. And we'll have some suggestions of which films to watch in 2024. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Georgina Godwin. This morning we reported on the 7.6 magnitude earthquake in Japan and as the country struggles to contain that disaster, there's been another dramatic event. A Japan Airlines aircraft burst into flames on the runway of Tokyo's Haneda Airport after a collision with a Coast Guard plane and, in what some are hailing as a miracle, all 379 passengers on board Flight 516 escaped unharmed. Well, Gavin Blair, a journalist based in Tokyo, joins me down the line now. Gavin, welcome back to the show. Can you describe what happened? Yeah, it's uh, quite a remarkable um, turn of events, let's say. Uh, and and these, the fact the tragedy is linked to the, to the earthquake. So yeah, this plane was coming into Haneda and appears just as it was landing to have struck this Coast Guard plane. It burst into flames. Um, if you see the footage, it's it's quite it's incredible. This plane ablaze hurtles down the runway. And the fact that, that all 379 aboard, 367 passengers and 12 crew evacuated, as you said, is, is semi-miraculous. And there's some footage shot by a passenger inside um, the plane, which shows what appears to be the engine on fire and smoke inside the cabin. So, yeah, incredible that they, they got uh, everyone out, um, 70 more than 70 fire engines were then dispatched to fight the blaze. Um, unfortunately, the uh, news is not so good for the, the crew of the Coast Guard plane that it crashed into. Um, it was initially said that the pilot had escaped and he has been confirmed escaped and is badly injured. Um, but the five other crew members um, were first said to be unaccounted for and have now been confirmed to, to have died. Um, even more tragic, it was a supply plane taking supplies to Niigata Airport for the relief efforts of, of part of, of the uh, yesterday's uh, fatal earthquake. Mm. How was the evacuation of the passengers achieved so speedily? Right, so it seems that, I mean, it really is a testament, I suppose, to, to modern safety technology and procedures that the those um, safety chutes opened as soon as the, the plane came to a halt and they seem to have managed to get everyone off in, in a remarkable amount of time. There was talk, of, like, it seems unbelievable. There was talk that it was 90 seconds. That seems unfathomable with that number of people. But what, however quick it was, um, it was certainly uh, executed very, very quickly. And, and people managed to get clear of the plane. Because by the time the, the fire crews had, had finished, there was just a burnt out shell left. Wow. Uh, is there any clarity yet on how the collision occurred? There isn't yet. I, I mean, I don't want to speculate, but this would have been an irregular flight in the the, the um, Coast Guard flight because it was taking supplies 
to to the north, or rather across to the other side of the, of the country. So I am speculating, but it's possible that the fact that this wasn't a regular flight and wouldn't normally have been there may have been a factor. Mm-hmm. Now, Haneda is J- Japan's busiest airport. Is it still closed? And what sort of impact will that have not only on regular travel, but also rescue operations for the earthquake? Indeed, it, it is. A, it's, it's by, by some measures, it's the third busiest airport in the world, actually, just ahead of, of London Heathrow. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a central hub, of course, for both domestic and uh, international travel. And there is a, a Coast Guard base there, which also uses it. Um, and, and certainly there, some of the rescue operations would have been coming from there or were coming from there. So uh, exactly how much impact it's hard to say at this time, but certainly will be significant. Mm. And finally, Gavin, do we have any updated information on the earthquake and rescue efforts? So the Prime Minister Kishida just just a few minutes ago was giving an emergency press conference commenting on, on both the, the incident at Haneda and the report. So the Rescue efforts are ongoing. The latest figures we've seen is is 48 confirmed dead. Um, They're still searching. There's more than 200 buildings burned out in one area and some some houses were pulled out to sea by the tsunami, which seems more didn't seem um, as powerful first, but certainly has done damage. Um, Rescue efforts are ongoing. Obviously, it's dark now and temperatures have dropped. But uh, yeah, that will they will carry on again tomorrow. Gavin, thank you very much indeed. That's Gavin Blair there speaking to us from Tokyo. Now, here's Laura Kramer with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Georgina. Thailand and China will permanently waive visa requirements for travellers from both countries after several rounds of talks. The move is likely to bring a boost to Thailand's tourism industry, which has seen a slow recovery since the pandemic. Somalia has recalled its ambassador to Ethiopia after Addis Ababa agreed to recognize the independence of the breakaway republic Somaliland in exchange for access to its seaports. Somalia, which claims ownership of the region, called the deal a clear violation of its sovereignty. A court in Bangladesh has sentenced Nobel Peace Prize winner Mohamed Yunus to six months in prison for labor law violations. Yunus and his microfinance firm won the 2006 Nobel Peace Prize for their work to lift millions out of poverty. His supporters say the arrest is politically motivated. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Georgina. Thank you, Laura. Now, in his New Year's address, Chinese President Xi Jinping has ramped up the rhetoric on Taiwan, saying China's reunification with the self-governed territory China claims as its own is inevitable. The comments come as Taiwan prepares for presidential and parliamentary elections on January the 13th, which will determine the island's cross-strait policy for the next four years. William Yang is a journalist based in Taipei, and he joins me on the line now. William, the island's current president, Tsai Ing-wen, is Stepping down after eight years in power, who are the front runners to replace her? So the front runner is the current vice president and also the presidential candidate from the ruling Democratic Progressive Party, William Lai Lai Qingde. Uh, he is a doctor turned politician and has been in the uh, cabinet since Tsai Ing-wen came to power eight years ago, he was first the premier, and then four years ago was Tsai Ing-wen's running mate, and has been the vice president ever since. Uh, he's right now leading in the poll by about seven or eight percent and uh trailing behind him is the uh candidate from the main opposition Kuomintang party which is a china-friendly party that is uh, vowing to re-establish uh closer ties with china uh he is currently trailing behind 
by about 7%. And then the third uh, candidate is a Taipei mayor, former Taipei mayor turned uh, politician uh, who is whose name is Ko Wenzhe, and uh, he is a third-party candidate that is proposing to offer the uh, Taiwanese people a alternative choice from between the two main traditional parties. And what's his stance on ties with China? So he has uh, repeatedly uh, said the slogan that both sides of the Taiwan Strait are one family. And at the same time, he said that he is still going to try to maintain the uh, strong ties with the United States. But uh, one concern with him is that he is one of the least with the international experience among the three. And at the same time, uh, also having quite some of a controversial relationship both with Washington and Beijing because uh, he is known to be unpredictable and also known to be unorthodox, oftentimes uh, likely to say and make comments that will be viewed by Beijing and Washington as uh, unsustainable or even outside of their comfort zone. And so uh, in the, in the case of this, uh, I think there, the level of suspicion in him and both Washington and Beijing are much higher compared to the other two candidates. Mm. Now, let's have a look at uh, uh, Xi Jinping's New Year's comments and the change in tone from his speech the same time last year. Uh, how is China increasing pressure on Taiwan and what has he said about that? So we have seen China uh, unleashing this carrots and sticks strategy for the last few weeks. On the one hand, uh, including from Xi Jinping and today from the Taiwan Affairs Office, uh, they have all repeated this call that the reunification between both sides of the Taiwan Strait will be inevitable, which is quite uh, surprising in a way that it's becoming so close to the election. Usually China will be quite low key in terms of commenting on elections issues in Taiwan, because traditionally this is a time of the year that if they make too much gesture or comments, then it will backfire. Taiwanese people will likely uh, vote in a direction that is against Beijing's preference. But this time around, it seems like maybe they have more confidence in terms of the fact that there is a chance that the candidates that they prefer will be able to actually turn the election around. So that's why they are doubling down on this call that the reunification between China and Taiwan will be inevitable. And at the same time, we are continuing to see China uh, deploying fighter jets and naval vessels and also balloons across Taiwan. Like last night, uh, in fact, a balloon flew across Taiwan's uh, sky before it disappeared uh, on the eastern side of Taiwan. And this balloon tactic is a new thing of their a gray zone tactic that is really trying to put Taiwan under pressure. And it's closely associated with the rhetoric that Beijing has been saying that this election is a choice between war and peace and a re-election of the Democratic Progressive Party, the ruling party, will mean that Taiwan will be further pushed towards the brink of war with China. And are there any direct attempts at electoral interference? For instance, we understand that there, I mean, there have been allegations that China put pressure on the Taiwanese rock band May Day. Right. So there have been uh, multiple different, uh, very obvious allegations and also evidenced uh, interference, including they have been paying uh, more than 100 local board of chiefs and village chiefs to go on sponsored trips to China. And during the trip, these uh, local leaders will be asked to sign documents to uh, pledge that they will be voting and supporting 
candidates that are preferred by Beijing, which is from the uh, KMT. And at the same time, including uh, the Foxconn founder, Terry Gold, who in fact was running as an independent in the poll up until the last minute of the registration, his company was facing an investigation into uh, tax issues when out, right after he announced that he's going to run. Um, and then so that was widely believed to be the reason that forced him out of the race in the end. And also this uh, latest uh, incident of the rock band being investigated for lip syncing in China. And, you know, supposedly they were asked to sign a document that will pledge that they support China's vision on both of the cross-strait uh, status. And so basically, I think this time around, we are seeing a lot more obvious ways and actions unleashed by Beijing to interfere in the election, which is quite unusual compared to four years ago. Mm. Now, we understand that Taiwan is considering joining the International Criminal Court. Would that deter China? And given the fact that only 13 countries officially recognize Taiwan, uh, what would that mean on the question of Taiwan's statehood? So the potential inclusion of Taiwan into an organization like the International Criminal Court, I think is going to uh, continue to convince the Taiwanese people that the foreign policy under the current government uh, of DPP and Tsai Ing-wen has been working, which is that Taiwan will continue to find ways to increase its own international participation through international organizations, and at the same time, uh, getting the supports from like-minded democracies to back its bid. But at the same time, we also know that these international organizations often are highly uh, vulnerable to threats coming from Beijing. And so the likelihood of Taiwan actually will be able to join an international organization at the, I think, a level like the International Criminal Court will remain, uh, I think, like questionable just simply because of the fact that Beijing is very deeply having a lot of influence in the uh, on the international arena and in the UN system. And so uh, it is definitely going to lobby and use different ways to have a lot of the other countries to try to block Taiwan's bid to join the ICC. And William, just finally, we know that China's expelled nine military officials from its parliament, including four generals of the army's strategic missile unit. And that follows the appointment of a a new defence minister. Has this weakened the People's Liberation Army? Would it slow Xi Jinping's military ambition? I think it will definitely have an impact on the capacity and the capabilities of the POA uh, because of the fact that we it's very clear that she part of the uh, investigation I mean the uh, purge is because Xi Jinping wants to strengthen his control over the military to install people that are loyal to him. Uh, So the fact that he's prioritizing loyalty over expertise in a lot of these uh, very strategically important units within the PLA will mean that uh, there will be potential, I think, concerns about the deployment and the uh, capabilities being uh, correctly assessed. And at the same time, I think uh, it is just showing the fact that the purge is, in fact, more for the purpose of strengthening Xi Jinping's personal power rather than for the greater good of uh, China or China's uh, military. And so I think experts widely believe that 
un- unless he has uh, decided to stop the purge and you know like uh, allow the military to get back on its own structure and also own operation, then you know like the Chinese military will face a turbulent period of time, and they don't see this purge to stop anytime soon because they believe that uh, Xi Jinping is really just not done yet in terms of, uh, I think, uh, reforming, transforming the Chinese political and military structure into something that he believes is fully under his control. William, William, thank you very much indeed. That's William Yang there in Taipei. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. Israel's Supreme Court has overturned a law that would have prevented it from overruling government decisions. This was at the centre of Benjamin Netanyahu's controversial judicial overhaul project, which the government passed into law in July, sparking mass protests, damaging the economy and widening divides within society. Well, Alison Kaplan-Sommer is a journalist with Haaretz newspaper, and she joins me now from Tel Aviv. Alison, many thanks for coming on the briefing. Could you remind us of the ins and outs of this controversial law? Um, yes, well, there were a lot of ins and outs, and um, since October 7th, uh, most of Israel has not been focused on this, but it really gripped the country for the uh, almost the entire uh, year before that. Um, it was actually introduced, this package of laws which would weaken the Israeli judiciary and hand over much more power to the legislature and to the ruling coalition exactly a year ago on um, uh, January 4th, um, uh, exactly, exactly a year ago. Um, so this was the first piece of that package of legislation and the only piece that the Knesset managed to pass, that the coalition managed to pass through the Knesset. It struck down something called the reasonableness clause, which allowed the judiciary to um, to overturn government decisions, um, uh, administerial decisions um, uh, on any kind of level, national level, local level, on the fact that they would not be reasonable, that there was some sort of a smell of corruption, that there was something not right about it. And this law um, would take away that key power um, of the judiciary uh, to do so. So the fact that this law um, is being declared unconstitutional by a majority of Israel's Supreme Court means that um, the rest of the package of laws um, is, is highly, highly um, unlikely to uh, to be passed by the Knesset. And if it were to pass the Knesset, it um, it makes it clear that, um, that there's a good chance that it too would be struck down the, mm. by the Supreme Court. And what did the Supreme Court say in its ruling? Um, it said that uh, that it uh, upset the balance of powers that's uh, necessary in uh, in a democracy, and uh, and that it uh, you know 578 pages of it. It was a very um, uh, long decision, um, but uh, but it basically said in the decision that um, that in in order to remain a democracy, that um, that you needed to maintain a balance of powers, and uh, and getting rid of the reasonableness clause um, upset the the democratic uh, balance of powers, which is basically what. Uh, what most of the country was was arguing in this, and that um, you needed uh, in the in the way that the Israeli government is set up, you need that balance 
by the court in order that um, that a ruling coalition in the Knesset would not essentially be a dictatorship, be able to do whatever uh, whatever it wants, because mm. it's it's pretty much there is nothing within the political um, uh, landscape that balances the power of the prime minister and the ruling party. There are not enough other checks and balances other than the court. So you cannot take away this from the court. How's the decision been received by the various opponents and supporters of the law? Well, obviously, the opponents are unhappy about it and the supporters are um, are happy about it. But, you know, in a world uh, where there was not October 7th, in a world where Israel was not engulfed in this war in Gaza, there would be, you know, much more cheering on the streets and celebrating by those who fought, who were out in the streets in the hundreds of thousands to uh, to kill this initiative, this uh, this judicial overhaul that the Netanyahu um, uh, government backed. And there would be much more bitter and angry pushback by the government. Right now, Israel is so focused on uh, battling uh, external threats and external enemies and, and a feeling that, um, you know, this period of time in which it was fighting over the judicial overhaul weakened it because of the inter- uh, internal split. So um, it's being met by low-key happiness, I guess you would say, on the part of those who fought so fought hard for, the, for this to happen and much more muted um, opposition and anger by uh by those who um, who supported the uh, the change, the overhaul. And what do you think this will mean for Israel and for Netanyahu personally? Um, well, I was going to say the the person who's probably having the most extreme reaction to this decision uh, is Netanyahu. Personally, he made some efforts within the political um, uh, arena to um, pass law that would that would postpone the release of this decision until uh, until later because the country needed to be united for the war. That attempt to uh, to postpone the uh, the ruling uh, failed on his part. What he's looking at is um, another challenge that has made it up to the the Supreme Court that is on a constant constitutional level, um, part of the uh, the judicial overhaul and the fight against it, is a law that would prevent the prime minister from being declared uh, incapacitated. And uh, and that's something that he's, you know, very personally uh, worried about and that he's uh, he's very unhappy about this precedent being set of um, of of allowing the uh, the the judiciary to maintain its power over the decisions of the of the legislature when he's looking at future laws that will protect him from the uh, the the legal um, troubles that he's under due to his uh, his corruption trial. Um, he's very unhappy now that the uh, that the, that this decision points to a direction in which the judiciary is able to uh, to maintain its power over decisions by the parliament by the Knesset. Alison, thank you very much indeed. That's Alison. Alison Kaplan Summer in Tel Aviv. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. Margareta of Denmark has shocked her nation by announcing she'll step down as monarch after 52 years, leaving the throne to her son, Crown Prince Frederick. Well, Lars Hofbacher Sorensen is an associate professor in history at University College Absalon in eastern Denmark and a commentator on European monarchies. Lars, many thanks for joining us. It became it began as a traditional New Year's Eve address by the Queen. How did the speech develop? It developed uh, so that uh, the Queen said a lot of different things in the beginning, in the middle of the speech. But then at the end, she suddenly said that she wanted to uh, to step back uh, and to resign 
on the 14th of January. That means uh, within uh, a couple of weeks. And that was a fairly uh, large, large shock for the Danes because it's the first time for more than 500 years uh, that a monarch has resigned uh, before uh, her or his uh, death. And what's her reason for stepping down? She uh, told uh, the Danes something about her health uh, problems, uh, but the main reason seems to be that she wants to um, to prepare the monarchy for the future. And she means that uh, it's important that uh, we will not have a crown prince who is too old before he becomes uh, a king. Uh, we have the experiences from United Kingdom with Prince Charles uh, becoming more than 70 years old before he, he uh, became the, the king. And Queen Margaret uh, wanted, so to speak, to avoid a British situation. She did not mention uh, the UK, but uh, she can look around in Europe and see that the monarchs are getting older and older, luckily enough, because uh, the health, health situation, generally speaking, is uh, better and better, and people becomes, uh, become uh, older and older, generally uh, speaking. But, but she wants uh, a quite young uh, king uh, to uh, to uh, go in uh, instead of her to to be the the, the next uh, monarch and that would not be the the case if she was waiting uh, five or ten more years uh, before she left the throne. So where does this leave the Danish royal family? Is it still relevant in 2024? Yeah, uh, I think this is a part of Queen Margaret's strategy, which uh, she actually. Uh, has followed for many years to modernize uh, step by step the Danish uh, monarchy so that it will still be relevant for the Danish uh, people. And uh, one way uh, of doing it is to break with uh, traditions uh, which um, prevent uh, uh, or potentially prevent uh, the modern, modernization and the public support for the monarchy uh, as an institution, state's uh, form uh, to, to, uh, to, uh, to uh, exist. So uh, it is part of the strategy where she also last uh, or a couple of years ago decided that, uh, that there should be some changes in the titles for some of the royal persons. And uh, she decided that uh, Crown Prince Frederick's uh, oldest son, Prince Christian, should have his uh, uh, salary from uh, the Danish state, but not his sisters and brothers. So uh, it's a part of securing, uh, of her plan of securing that will still have a support for um, the monarchy in the future, so that people in Denmark will not be dissatisfied with that they should pay a lot of money to a lot of different princes and princesses, for instance, and uh, she wants to uh, modernize uh, in, in many other ways than, than those uh, which I have mentioned here also. Lars, thank you very much indeed. That's Lars Hobaka Sørensen speaking to us from Denmark. <laughs> Now, to end the show, let's get some viewing recommendations from Ashanti Omkar, who is a film, TV and culture critic. Uh, Ashanti, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Happy New Year. Same to you. Right, just a couple of days uh, before the release of One Life. Tell us about this. 
Oh gosh, this is a British biographical drama. Nicholas Winton, he saved 669 Czech Jewish children from the Nazis, you know, back back in the day. And this story is not completely new to all of us, but the way they've told it is absolutely exquisite. Anthony Hopkins is a national treasure. He's given us a golden performance. It's a very poignant film. He never wanted the accolades actually for this. He was very reluctant because he didn't feel he achieved enough, but actually saving all those children was such a such a big deal. And he, he passed away in 2015 at the age of 106. So he lived, you know, for, for a very long time. And it's beautiful that they've actually given us this this story at this stage. Mm. On to poor things. Now, this is science f- fantasy and it's also a black comedy. <laughs> yes, it is. Yorgos Lanthimos, we've uh, seen him win an Academy Award and BAFTAs for The Favourite. He's very good at creating, you know, a landscape. He he likes to give us big cinema. And this this time round, I have to say, for a man to have looked into the patriarchy so deeply has really impressed me. Emma Stone has given us a, a performance that might win loads of awards for her. And it's about how these men are looking at this woman because it, it's a very complicated story. And I don't want to give you any spoilers with this, but let's just say that it unravels as it goes along. And you get to see all the different men in her life and how they want to own her and how she wants to take the autonomy for herself. Hmm. And then on January the 9th, we see the release of The Holdovers. Tell us more. On the 19th of January, The Holdovers comes out. Now, this is a film that should have come come out actually on Christmas Day because it's a Christmas drama in so many ways. It's a comedy. Paul Giamatti has teamed up with Divine Joy uh, Randolph. And uh, this one is a film that will have you you know, kind of wistful for the old days of filmmaking. Alexander Payne, who also is a very accoladed director to Academy Awards, the BAFTA Award winner, winner, has created this this, this as a, a story of a professor at this, this posh school who's dealing with very rich students. And he's got to be this holdover. The students are left on campus for holidays and he's got to look after some of them and let's just say that one student he looks after Dominic Sessa steals the show in so many ways and gives us a a very heartwarming story in so many ways Ashanti thank you very much indeed that was Ashanti Omkar and that's all for this edition of The Briefing which was produced by Lillian Fawcett and Laura Kramer our studio manager was Tamsin Howard and The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time I'm Georgina Godwin goodbye and Thanks for listening.